Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. You're listening to episode number nine, Intimacy After Trauma. I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. In this episode, we'll be talking about learning to trust others again and how to engage in sexual intimacy in a safe and healthy way. We often get asked by survivors how to establish healthy relationships with others after trauma. How do you have healthy sexual relationships without feeling triggered? How do you establish trust and open communication when it feels so hard to open up? We'll talk about some of the impacts trauma can have on your relationships, such as impacting your self-worth and even leading to isolation and avoidance. Then we'll end with some strategies you can try to begin to heal your relationships with others. Relationships are crucial for our survival, and they're incredibly important in healing from interpersonal trauma. Intimacy and healthy relationships after trauma are possible if you work at it. I have witnessed so many survivors be able to establish healthier relationships after trauma than they had before. So first, let's talk about what intimacy is. Intimacy is often seen as the foundation for relationships, the ability to share vulnerable parts of yourself with another person in an open and trusting manner. I mean, the truth is there are several different kinds of intimacy, including sexual, emotional, physical, or even psychological. Think about what intimacy means to you. What comes up when you hear the word? What emotions arise? What ways do you engage in intimacy? Throughout this podcast, we are going to be talking about intimacy in the context of a variety of relationships. Maybe it's a long-term monogamous relationship, or maybe it's learning how to trust and communicate with close friends or family members. Perhaps it's figuring out how to be sexually intimate during a one-night stand or a hookup in ways that keep you safe and don't trigger you. As with any of our podcasts, just pick and choose what resonates with you. So now that we've defined what intimacy is, as well as the different types of relationships you might find yourself in, I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact trauma can have on your connections with others. By identifying common ways trauma shows up in your friendships, hookups, romantic relationships, it can help you be better able to develop strategies and define ways to work through challenges. And when you're able to name some of the impacts of trauma that are showing up for you, It helps in recognizing that some of what comes up in your relationships is actually totally normal considering the trauma you've been through. So first, let's talk about how trauma reshapes the standpoint from which we approach relationships. Any relationship can be extremely challenging after an experience of interpersonal violence where trust has been violated. Bessel van der Kolk, the author of The Body Keeps the Score, says that being traumatized means continuing to organize your life as if the trauma is still going on unchanged and immutable, as every new encounter or event is contaminated by the past. So often you're entering into new relationships accompanied by the pain, guilt, and shame of prior experiences of abuse and trauma. Sometimes having a trauma history can mean that you carry some of the stuff from your past into current and future relationships. Prior experiences of trauma may mean that you are entering into relationships with others from the paradigm that you deserve to be abused or violated. That's the message that interpersonal violence can send you. Abuse can drastically impact your self-worth and how you see yourself, implanting you with this false belief. This belief can change the way you set boundaries with others, how you engage in all types of intimacy. It may mean that you put another's needs before your own. And sometimes 
This also means that you get into relationships that aren't the healthiest, or you find yourself having a hard time advocating for your needs and wants with a partner. Maybe you even feel that no one could ever love or care for you and that you don't deserve love or to be treated well. Maybe you've even noticed that when people show signs of caring for you, you feel the need to keep them at arm's length as a way to protect yourself. Maybe you're doubtful of a parent's, friend's, or partner's love for you, having difficulty believing that anyone could care for you in such a way. The thing to remember is that you're not the only one who may experience this. And these feelings likely have roots in your traumatic experience, which also means that you're able to let go of these feelings. Trauma can also lead you to feel isolated. Some survivors I've worked with talk about feeling like they can't participate in certain social activities after trauma. They feel like they don't fit in in the same way that they used to, and that the relationships they had before the traumatic experience just aren't the same. Maybe you've noticed that your friend group has shifted because it's become too difficult to participate in regular social activities, like going to concerts, being in large crowds, or drinking and partying. Even if your assault didn't happen in these scenarios, an overactive nervous system can make these types of situations overwhelming. This can shift your relationship with friends, leaving you feeling isolated. Maybe you also found yourself hurt or upset by the way others responded to your trauma. It could have been a parent who blamed you for your assault, or a best friend who made it all about them when you shared your story. Maybe it was a romantic partner who accused you of cheating the night you were sexually assaulted, and then proceeded to break up with you. This can have a huge impact on your ability to trust others, and can certainly cause rifts in relationships with friends and close family members. Even if your friends or family were supportive, you still may feel like you can't even talk about or mention the trauma. Maybe they expect you to be over it by now, or they've got their own stuff going on so you don't feel like you can bring it up with them. Or maybe they're just simply unsupportive when you do bring it up, so you just stop mentioning it. This can lead to a further sense of isolation and feeling like you have to just pretend like everything is fine around the people that you care about. You may find that your entire friend group changes after trauma. It may take some time for your relationships and others to shift with your new normal, like your friends getting used to you not going out in the same way anymore, or a partner getting used to your new desires around sexual intimacy. The shift in transition is normal, and it can be worked through with the right support and tools. You may also notice yourself less tolerant of conflict or even aversive to it, finding it difficult to talk through disagreements with others. As we've mentioned in a past podcast, trauma could lead your body's stress hormones to be all out of whack, which means you may respond differently to stressful situations than you did before. This may mean that you sometimes find yourself having heightened emotional reactions to common relationship issues. You may find that you build an emotional wall around yourself as a way of protecting yourself from further harm. This is incredibly common and just takes some time to work to ease back into vulnerability. But here's the flip side. You may also find yourself constantly needing to justify or excuse unhealthy or unsupportive behaviors from others because of the impact trauma has had on your self-worth. Keep in mind that the majority of abusers aren't abusive all the time. Sometimes they can present as incredibly loving and supportive, which can be super confusing. If this was the case in a previous relationship of yours, it can be important to really learn about red flags and warning signs 
talking with a trained counselor or an advocate to really pull apart the dynamics of your prior relationship that gave you the clues it wasn't super healthy. This can help with learning to trust another in your next relationship because you're more aware of what to look out for. When considering romantic partnerships, it's also healthy to look for someone who will support you in working through your trauma and is open to talking about all this stuff. So now we'd like to shift gears a bit and talk about what it's like to rebuild trust after trauma and navigate intimacy in your relationships. There are several things to consider, and doing your own internal healing is important, like learning to recognize your triggers, how to be present in the moment in order to notice how you're feeling, and strengthening your own communication skills. But ultimately, relationships are made up of more than just you. So it's important for your partner, friends, family to meet you halfway. You can only do so much in a relationship, and sometimes it may mean letting people go if they're not supporting your healing. Sometimes after trauma, you may find that you're unsure about someone. It can be easier to just simply assume they're untrustworthy and unsafe than to risk being hurt again. In the immediate aftermath of a trauma, this tendency can be helpful by keeping you safe from possible further abuse. And learning to trust again in a healthy and safe way is a process and certainly doesn't happen all at once. But let's talk for a minute about trust. When you do start to feel ready to trust people again, it's okay to take as much time as you need. You can think about finding ways to test someone's trustworthiness, like sharing small bits of information with them, and then waiting until they've proven themselves trustworthy to share more. You can also try setting boundaries with someone to test them out. Maybe they make a rape joke and you let them know that you're not interested in dating someone that thinks that that's funny. What is their reaction when you tell them this? Or maybe you've noticed that they've made several microaggressions against you, and you've kind of explained to them that you're not okay with this. After you've checked in with them, did they change their behavior, or did they continue to do the same thing? Something to keep in mind is that a person needs to earn your trust. You don't have to just give it away to them. Dating someone is an opportunity to try someone out and see if a relationship with that person works for you. You don't owe anyone anything, even if they take you to dinner or do a ton of nice things for you. And once you're not feeling it anymore, you absolutely have a right to cut it off with this person. So we've talked about relationships, but what does this actually mean when we get down to the level of sexual intimacy? How do you actually navigate sexual situations without feeling triggered? A great place to start is identifying what it is that you actually want, sexually speaking. There's a great book out there by Jacqueline Friedman called What You Really, Really Want. The book walks you through a bunch of activities and journaling exercises to really get you thinking about what you desire. The book is built on the premise that we receive a ton of conflicting messages about our sexuality from lots of different places, the media, our family, friends, religion, etc. So we have to strip all that away and figure out what we actually want to say yes to. The book is a great starting point. If you want to learn more about the book, Casey talks about it in more depth during this season's recommendation show. So check it out. But really, it's just about starting to sort out what you really want that's not in any way dictated by societal pressures or what your partner may want. It can help you to see where you may have said yes to some things that you didn't really want to do, but you thought you should want. Clarifying your desires ensures that you're only doing the things that you want to do because you want to do them. So a great way to experiment with figuring out what you want is self-pleasure. Seriously, 
You're free from worrying about further trauma from someone else, and there's definitely no worries about STDs or pregnancy. So go with it. See where it takes you. Masturbation can be incredibly healing and a powerful way to connect with your sexuality. Knowing where and how you like to be touched and don't like to be touched makes a huge difference in your experience of sex. You can also practice stopping at any point when you feel triggered, and this can totally help you feel safe and in control. And knowing what makes your body feel good means you'll be better able to direct sexual partners. So learning to stay present and connect with your body, both during intimacy and all other times, can make a huge difference in your ability to experience sex without going into a panic. It's good to begin to check in regularly with your body and your emotions, noticing when something doesn't feel good. You don't always need to immediately understand why it doesn't feel so good, but just notice when it doesn't. Then you can also begin to work on communicating in those moments. It may even be helpful to just identify the impact that trauma has had on your sexual intimacy with others. The book, The Sexual Healing Journey by Wendy Maltz has a chapter that allows you to take an inventory of the ways that interpersonal trauma and sexual violence has had an impact on your attitudes, behaviors, and ideas around sex. There are actual checklists that can help you identify specific ways the abuse has influenced your relationships and your experience of sex. By identifying these impacts, you can feel more empowered to create the sexual experiences you actually want instead of just going along with what's expected of you. So there's a few other important things that you can ask yourself in sexual encounters to identify whether it's a healthy or respectful situation or not. Are you able to freely and comfortably choose whether or not to engage in sex with partners? And can you stop the sexual activity at any time during the encounter? Do you feel a sense of personal power in the relationship with your partners? Is there a balance of power? Do you feel like there's a solid level of respect in the relationship? Do you feel safe? Do your partners respect your desire for protective measures against pregnancy and STDs? Wendy Maltz has created a more comprehensive list of questions you can ask yourself that I'll add a link to in the show notes. In addition to knowing what you want sexually, it's also important to know and be aware of what triggers you in relationships. Triggers can be anything, and we will go into more depth on them in this season's Sensory Grounding podcast, as well as season one's Neurobiology podcast. So check those both out to learn more. Triggers activate your body's fight, flight, or freeze response, leading to feelings of intense anxiety and fear, or even tonic immobility. Identifying your triggers takes time and energy and also requires you to be present in the moment in order to gain awareness of your triggers. Mindfulness can be very helpful with this. Paying attention to what sensations you feel in your body, what emotions are coming up for you, and being aware of your surroundings. By being aware when you're triggered, you're more able to notice how you want to respond. Instead of responding by running away or becoming flooded with panic, you're able to instead work through the trigger with a greater sense of control. Maybe it's a simple physical gesture from your partner that sets you into a panic. Grounding in the moment and reminding yourself that you're safe can reduce the trigger response. Keep in mind that if you're regularly having panic attacks or flashbacks, it may be helpful to talk to a professional counselor or advocate. It's also important to notice if you're regularly having sex to numb or to tune out, this may be a sign that you're using sex in an unhealthy way. And if you don't know what your triggers are yet, just pay attention to how you're feeling and know that you have every right to communicate these feelings with your partners. Knowing what your triggers are means that you're able to regain power over them 
and this can help build a sense of intimacy with your partners. Learning to stay present in the moment, staying connected to partners, and not disassociating is a really powerful experience. And these techniques can apply to any type of relationship. For example, with a one-night stand, you may not feel as comfortable having a long conversation with the other person about your triggers, but you can be sure to clearly state your boundaries and communicate what your hell knows are in sex. So let's be real. Relationships are crucial for our survival. And learning how to trust and cultivate true intimacy isn't always easy, but it's totally worth it. It requires commitment and dedication to healing in relationship with others, not just in isolation. So cultivating healthy, healing relationships to other people requires us to devote time and attention to our relationships. When we work on our own healing, we will feel the ripple effects of it in our relationships. Keep in mind that trauma can make us more connected to ourselves and encourage us to do deeper self-development work, which can ultimately serve our relationships in many ways. Healing from interpersonal trauma is not linear, and this applies to creating healthy relationships too. Sometimes you feel like you're doing great at it and making progress, and other times it can feel like you've taken 10 steps back. But true healing is possible, and it's definitely possible in the context of relationships. You can absolutely go on to have healthy, intimate connections with others that feel really good. And the important thing is, to commit to working through things when the challenges around intimacy present themselves. And of course, remember to reach out for help when you could use some support in working through things. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970 492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot edu. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast. And to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.